Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Hello. I am grateful to be here with you tonight again. So last week uh, we were in, this is hilarious. I'm not sure why we're just low grade giggling right now. But I'm Andrew. Uh, if you did not know me, I'm, I'm grateful to be uh, with you all tonight, worshiping God as we sing and we, we look at the word. And so if you recall, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 again this week. So go ahead and uh, get your Bibles out. Uh, and as we do that, uh, I will go ahead and sort of refresh our memories. So last week we looked at the first 24 verses in Luke, 1 through 24, chapter 14, uh, we saw Jesus at a dinner party with the Pharisees and, and lawyers. Uh, we called that awkward dinner party. It was very awkward indeed. Now, contextually, we're moving on to the rest of the chapter, verses 25 to 35, and he's left this dinner party, and he is now back on the road again. And so he's been on the road in these, this, chap, this section of Luke uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, and these great crowds are following with him on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, where he knows that he will, he, a crucifixion awaits him. So that's kind of the context right now. He knows he's on the, a journey uh, on a road that leads to his crucifixion. And it, it's worth noting that very few, if anybody, I don't, I don't know that we know of anybody in the scripture who really understood that, uh, that was going to be how things would end up. Jesus, on many occasions in the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospel accounts, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to suffer and die, and on the third day be raised again. And seldom, it's usually something to the effect of they did not understand this. Or, uh, or maybe Peter, for example, rebukes Jesus for even saying something to that effect. And so even the closest disciples of Christ, no idea that this was going to go on. Uh, what they actually expected, most of them expected, is that upon entering Jerusalem, uh, Jesus was going to uh, not die, not be crucified and, and submitted unto death, uh, but to be exalted. They expected, uh, they knew him to be the Messiah. They believed him to be the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And their expectations was that he was going to go to the throne. He was heading to Jerusalem, not for humiliation, but for exaltation, uh, to set up the messianic rule of the Lord. And they, they expected that. They had reason to, or so they believed from the prophecies. And they hoped that the kingdom of God was coming when he got to Jerusalem. And so you can imagine the shock uh, when the actual reality was, of course, his crucifixion. But, but you can imagine, like we see this picture now, many of these people, you might imagine, it says in the first verse of 20 of our passage, that is in uh, 25, great crowds accompanied him. We don't know who constitute this crowd, but we can assume that there were likely some among him uh, following him who expected some benefit for themselves, that Christ is going to be exalted to the throne, inauguration of a new kingdom, we're free from Rome. They expected some benefit for themselves. So that's the context we are looking at tonight, and, and the title of the sermon tonight is going to be, Do You Want Jesus? Do you want Jesus? This is the question, it seems perhaps like a funny question, but it's a question I think this text begs of the people following him, and it begs of us tonight. And I, I want us to see sort of uh, what, where this fits in. So last week we saw the parable of the great banquet, and we learned that there was a really surprising point that Jesus was making with that parable, which is that not everybody wants to go to the kingdom of God. 
some people may believe in God. They might profess there is a kingdom of God. They, they say, they assume they will be going there. And yet their lives, their worship confesses that they are busy and they should like to be excused. And so we know this to be a very terrible deception to be under, to exchange the eternal joy and life in Christ for the fleeting temporal pleasures of sin and riches. And we don't want this for ourselves, very obviously. And so here's the roadmap for us tonight. And so first, what I want us to do as we get into this text is I want us to consider, and I want us to consider the costliness of discipleship. It's what this text is most obviously talking about. Your Bibles might even say the cost of discipleship here. Second thing I want us to do, and this is really the crux of the sermon tonight, is I want us to behold. When we come to the text tonight, I want us to behold in this text the worthiness of Jesus, surprisingly seen in the costliness of discipleship. And lastly, I think we have in this text a a warning. So I say beware, and we see the deception of obedienceless confession in Christ. So again, let's turn to the question, do I, do you, you might ask yourself this tonight, do I want Jesus? This is the question we must each give answer to. So let me go ahead and read our text tonight. I'd appreciate if everyone, if you have your Bible, please read along with me. Verse 25, it says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish." Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we've seen this picture. Uh, it's, a, it's a somber text, I would say. Like, we don't come to this and say, let's go. Like, you don't read a text like this, uh, perhaps, at least on the surface level. And you can imagine this crowd following him. They're anticipating something great to happen when they arrive in Jerusalem Jesus turns around, and this is what he has to say to them. So I, w- I want for us to, to put ourselves there. Um, and what we see Jesus doing foremost is he's sort of discouraging, in a sense, this would-be uh, hype train, in a sense, pl- by plainly identifying the road he is actually on. So you can imagine, again, lots of excitement. Jesus has absolutely no interest in stoking a fire of excitement for people to follow him. Um, and I think we have even a, a point to be made in that at Huntington Community Church, Campus Collective, anyone who preaches here, we have absolutely no interest in preaching the gospel in such a way that you just get really, really excited. Hype, personal drive, moral, uh, moral resolve does not sustain a life of costly discipleship. What we need to do, what we need is to see the worthiness and the glory of Jesus, which does sustain a life of discipleship, which is costly. And this text here is proof. So if you're looking for anything in this text, if you looked at this, do not be looking for guidelines or principles or how to live the good life. 
or what we want to see in this text and the whole scriptures is the glory of Jesus. So look tonight with me for the glory. So first, let's stop on our first part of the roadmap is consider. We want to consider together the costliness of discipleship. It's the theme of the text. It is costly to be a disciple of Jesus and even saying that costly to be a disciple of Jesus seems to some of you I'm imagining as something quite surprising. And, and he most clearly identifies two, co- two costs of following him and then he summarizes the two in a statement. So the first cost we see, verse 26, hate his own father, m- mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life. And second, bear his own cross. And he sums it up in verse 33, renounce everything. This is what he identifies as the cost of discipleship. And I I think at this point, it is appropriate that before we attempt to apply this to ourselves, that we ought to discover first what the meaning is. Of course, it would be goofy for us to look at the Bible, and without even considering what this might mean, we simply try to apply it. I certainly would not advise you texting your mother tonight, I hate you, I was told to at Collective. And so let's learn to apply this text first of all. So the first most natural question I think that we would probably have concerning this text is his use of the word hate. Jesus, he, he says that a cost of discipleship is that we must hate our own father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, even our own life. And so we cannot, we need to understand what he means. So we ask the question then, what here is meant by hate? We know clearly from the whole Testament of scripture, if you don't already do this, we ought to uh, contextualize things such as this with the rest of the teachings of Christ and of scripture. And certainly Christ by no means teaches us to hate anyone in in the sense that we would typically understand hate of being the opposite of love, to despise or have animosity towards. And certainly uh, he would not encourage us to have animosity and hatred towards someone. Scripture specifically commands us to honor and love such as parents or spouse. So the most natural way to understand this would be to interpret the word hate here as to love to a lesser degree, or perhaps it means that we ought to be so supremely devoted in our affection to Jesus that our, effect, our, our devotion to any of these relationships is starkly subordinate, especially these ones which, would, we, which we would be most tempted to have an inordinate devotion to. Jesus, of course, doesn't say you have to hate your enemy here in this context. He says what? You must hate those whom you, must, you might be most tempted to have an insubordinately uh, supreme affection for when, in fact, the disciple of Christ has a supreme devotion foremost to Christ. Nonetheless, I think at this point, maybe some of us are, oh, so we, you know, this, this isn't a radical statement. So I, I think we even have a temptation there when we look at a text like this, we discover this love is to love to a lesser degree, and we're tempted to take what is clearly, I believe, meant to be a radical statement from Christ, and we want to de-radicalize what he says here. We make it abstract. That's, that's usually how we might uh, de-radicalize what would, of course, be a radical statement, is we, we make it what, what might be a concrete thing, we make it abstract. So you might say, sure, like I love Jesus more than my family. There's probably any Christ, no Christian in the world who would say, I love my family more than Jesus. It simply is not the case. It's in, in some sense, common sense. And yet that is a very abstract thing. And it is by no means the what Jesus means in this context. And the Bible seldom, we ought to know, speaks of love in the abstract. It is always actionable and it's always costly. In what way then can we actionably love Jesus supremely over our family and over ourselves? And I think it is appropriate here to apply a test from Jesus from Luke chapter 9, 57 and 62. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the, on the screen here. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. It's a normal request. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Another reasonable request. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so what we see most plainly from this text is that there is no room for love in the abstract in this text. We, we have Jesus making a concrete demand on would-be followers, and in that de- making of a demand, they are, they are required in, in loving him actionably to subordinate any lesser claims on their lives, normal claims, ethical claims, claims that our family might have on us potentially, or so we might believe. And yet when, when Christ concretely gives a command, follow me, uh, he doesn't give us time, in this context anyways, to get our affairs in order, uh, and he does not give us time to first contemplate. He, he simply enjoins would-be disciples, follow me, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And in that moment, the concrete love of Christ demands that we actionably respond uh, supremely to that and subordinate uh, the other claims of self. And from this, we see this, that costly, concrete love for Christ means that the real demands of Christ and the kingdom of God, which any of us might have put upon us at any point in time from the word of God, supersede the quite normal demands of self and even family. No natural, ethical, or religious claim upon us may supersede the word of God and its absolute claims on us in any moment in time. When Christ enjoins us to follow, it may concretely require, as Jesus specifically to many would-be disciples, concretely requires of them, not of everybody in general, but of specific individuals, that they sell all that they possess, they leave their homes, and deny the normal demands of family life. And this may very, very well be a demand that Christ may put on any one of us uh, in the course of our discipleship through the word of God. And we must be enjoined, therefore, to respond actionably in love. This is what it means to follow Jesus, loving him supremely. So that begs the question, do you want Jesus? When we think about hating such groups in the sense of loving them to a lesser degree, and that means that we must, have, have, we must subordinate such claims of family and self, then we must ask ourselves, is this worth it? Do you still want Jesus? Second cost that Jesus ties into discipleship is bearing your cross. So we see that here. It says, here, we, and here in the text, it says, uh, anyone who will come after me must bear his own cross uh, and come after me. And so here we have an allusion, of course, to the very means of Christ's own death, though no one in this present company of would-be disciples understood that this would be so when they reached the end of this very journey that they accompany him on. And I think we see something from this very fact, and we see this key thing, that before, before Jesus could obtain the kingdom of God prepared for him by the Father, it was necessary for our sake, and because it was the demand placed upon him by the will of the Father, that he literally had to bear a cross and die. That was a demand placed upon him by the will of the Father that he willingly subjected himself to. So then, this has, for Christ, of course, a very literal sense when he says, pick up your cross. And so, of course, we know not every Christian is a martyr, and not even every martyr dies on a cross. What is true of Jesus is true for everyone who would come after him, and that is that in order to receive imperishable life, it is necessary, not just for martyrs, but for everyone who will come after Jesus to count our present perishable life as a sacrifice for 
Christ's sake. And again, this, this isn't an abstract thing wherein we have a mindset that the imperishable is better than the perishable. This isn't an abstract mindset. We see for Christ that every, it is every bit for Christ a concrete cost for us as it was for him. And so we see this, again, explicitly in Luke chapter 9, 23 and 24. I read this last week. Look at the words here. He, he said to all, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone, not some, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, key word, for my sake, will save it. From this we know this, that we concretely, not abstractly, have to sow our present lives for Christ's sake before we have hope of reaping the imperishable life. Well, not hope, before we will. It's the means. We see this in nature, that there are are species of plants which must die in order to bring forth life. Certain uh, trees, I believe, drop things to the ground, which they die and they bring forth life. And this is natural in the case of nature, of course. It's called nature. And so also with the Christian, that we sow the perishable in order to reap the, the imperishable. While not every Christian becomes a martyr, which is to, to be murdered for righteousness' sake, every Christian must spend our lives and resources for the glory of God. We see, and I, I think we see a very uh, stark opposite of this, uh, in, of a life spent for Christ in the parable of the rich fool, which we see earlier in Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to read that now. It says, And he told them a parable, again, this is Jesus speaking, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I, uh, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I'm going to build larger ones. There I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? This is what he says about this. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. We have a very clear picture of a man who spends his life investing. He sows his life for this life. He invests in this life, building more and more barns to store up more and more barns. Christians are not barn builders. We we concretely spend our lives divesting in this life and investing in the eternal by using our actual resources and our physical bodies in obedience to the real demands of the kingdom of God, even if we should die in the process. Not abstract, we don't build barns, we divest in this life, invest in the eternal, actual resources, physical body, uh, bodies, and obedience to the demands of the kingdom of God, even if we should die. And this seems, uh, maybe even to some of you, but certainly to some of your family members, as incredibly foolish to live a life that Jesus here Describes, And I, I, th- I think that um, one particular text that we can look to, that those controlled by the Spirit of God and seeking first the kingdom of God will find themselves acting as the Corinthians do uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 through 3. You're, a lot of our families would say this is an absolutely foolish thing to do uh, with your life and with your money. And here's what it says the Corinthians did. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, and beyond their means for, uh, of their own accord. And these Corinthians, being controlled by the Spirit of God, gave away more than they could afford to give because the barns they were filling were not made with human hands. 
this seems to many of us, and to certainly some of our family members perhaps, to be a very foolish way to live. These people in extreme poverty, overflowing with joy in an abundance of, or a wealth, as it says, of generosity, giving more than they can afford to give. This is what it looks like to, to, to divest in this life. They have no stock in it. They're, building, they're filling barns not made with human hands. And I, I think here's an appropriate point to insert a famous quote that you all will be familiar with from missionary and martyr Jim Elliott. And you, you'll probably hear, have heard this. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Of course, you know, of course, uh, him being a martyr that he was killed during an attempt to bring the gospel to a people who had never heard it before. And something I actually uh, learned in, in recent months that you may not know about Jim Elliott is that he and some of the missionaries that were martyred with him actually had firearms with them uh, the day that they were on the beach and were, were killed uh, by the people they were trying to bring the gospel to. And they, they didn't use the guns to defend themselves. So, so any, any re- normal person would probably ask themselves, uh, why? Why would you not defend yourself? It seems perfectly reasonable to do so. But the reason is uh, that they had made a vow prior that they would not take the life of a person who was not prepared to go to heaven when they themselves were prepared to go to heaven. That's a person who understands what it is to divest in this life and to invest, invest in the imperishable life. He didn't count his life something to be preserved, but he instead gave his life for the imperishable war which waits us in Christ. That's a person who looks to many to be very foolish, but he says he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So summarizing this then, like when we see in this section is verse 33, it pulls these two specific costs together. Following Jesus costs the renunciation of everything. That's what it says there in verse 33. And we, we see then that costly, concrete love for Christ means that the real demands of the kingdom of God, which any of us put on us at any point in time from the word of God, supersede the quite normal demands of self and even family and that the Christian is not a barn builder. We divest in this life, invest in the eternal by using our actual resources, even if we should look like fools in our physical bodies in obedience to the kingdom of God, even if we should become impoverished or die in the process. It's a steep price, everything. When he says everything must be renounced and we do not, I believe, have in this text any justification for making that everything into an abstract mindset which costs us nothing. So I again ask us, do you want Jesus? He enjoins us here, we must count the cost. Second, and this is where I want our, our energy spent tonight in the word of God, is we, we need now to behold, to behold the worthiness of Jesus as seen in the costliness of discipleship. What in the world, you might ask then, can be worth this? What can I possibly be offered that should convince me in my poverty, if I should be impoverished, to give more than I can afford to give and even to spend my physical body uh, yeah, to spend my physical body, what can be worth that? And I want us to discover from God's word the worthiness of Jesus. And here's a very natural question some may be asking um, before we get into the bulk of this, is that if discipleship is costly, why are Christians always talking about being saved by grace? If you might ask, like, if, if discipleship is costly, Jesus says it is costly, how, are we, how is it that we can say, and I believe it is true, I say to you today that we are saved by grace. How can we say that if it's costly? How can grace cost? If we can speak of the gospel as good news, the kingdom of God is a great banquet. We read that last week. The poor, the hungry, the blind, the stranger shall receive abundantly and without charge from the table of God's blessing. How in the world do we now speak of costliness? And I think we have here what I can offer you 
is a, hel- a really helpful dis- distinction, is that when we speak of the sort of grace we have in Christ, we are speaking of costly grace. We are not speaking of cheap grace. And this sounds to some of you perhaps uh, like a confusing word, cheap, costly, to attach to a word which most fundamentally means unmerited. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was himself, again, a martyr, offers uh, a beautiful way for us of distinguishing and understanding the two in its book, The Cost of Discipleship. So look with me first at this quote on cheap grace. Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living in incarnate. Look what he says about costly grace. It's a long quote. It's really, really good for our souls tonight. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Costly grace is the incarnation of God, Jesus. Costly grace, then, is the exact sort of grace which I propose to you now that we see offered in this. And take, take notice of this. What we see here might seem to some of us like the absolute worst evangelistic tactic somebody might have ever employed. And yet in this, I think we discover a treasure about Christ and the kingdom. Christ has a giant crowd of people following him, and he turns around and says this. If anyone will follow me, you must hate your, fa- your father and mother Uh, and even yourself, your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters, and you must bear your cross and renounce everything. Now, what in the world sort of evangelistic tactic is that? Jesus very realistically and truthfully could have invited this crowd to the kingdom of God by describing, for example, the riches of God's grace and the joys that we will enjoy in the kingdom of God. By describing it, for example, as the great wedding banquet, which he has just done in the preceding narrative that we discussed last week. And he could have done the same complete truth, but instead he does something which isn't conducive to attracting people whatsoever. He says, do you all want to be my followers? Do you want to partake in the grace of God? Come then, and you surely will partake in it, but it is going to be costly. And I I think we have something to treasure in this. And that's that there is no fine print in following Jesus. When we come to the scripture, when we read the good news of the gospel proclaimed for the forgiveness of sins, there's no fine print wherein we say, okay, I'm going to follow you, and we get slapped with a cross. There's nothing which we will endure which Jesus has not forewarned. There's not a single cost that we will bear which has not been spoken of up front. Now, why in the world uh, would anybody who, who seeks to build any sort of following uh, be so bold in preaching the costliness of this? Why would he have no fine print? I think we often do this sort of bait and switch with things in general. Maybe even when we preach the gospel, we have a tendency to sort of cover up some of the costliness and talk about uh, the other, the, what seems to some people to be the good stuff. We don't want to talk about the costliness. So why can Jesus be unashamed of the costliness? And that is because the cost is not, we need to, we need to grasp this, the cost is not worth comparing to the surpassing worth we find in Jesus himself. This is what we need in God's worth tonight. Jesus is so supremely worthy of our praise, so infinitely desirable, so precious to sinners like us. He is such rest to the weariness of our souls, such grace to our insurmountable sin, and such water as in a dry and desert land where there is no water, that there is nothing in our capacity to possess that we would not unhesitatingly, without a second thought, 
sacrifice to get Christ if we truly knew him. So do you know him? Like when we consider Christ, do we want him? This is what we see very plainly laid out as Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed out in Matthew 13, the parable uh, of the hidden treasure. It says the kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sell all, sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of God is like. He compares it. It's a one-to-one. And no one would say about this man in the parable, what a, wow, this man paid such a great sacrifice or paid a great price to obtain that field, regardless of how much he gave away to acquire it. The value of what he possessed was not worth comparing to the value of the treasure in that field. He counted it as loss. It was not a foolish decision or even a religious one in his context. It was simply wisdom. He sees great worth. He's beheld, he's beheld worth and he gives away everything he has. And that's the obvious reaction that anyone uh, who has common sense would do. And yet we do not see or behold the worthiness of Christ. And therefore we do not, uh, we are very seldom willing to part with even the simplest um, possessions that we would cling on to. This man, though, he, he sought this with joy, and so can we, and so ought we to do the same with joy for Christ's sake. It is no, uh, it is no obligation to sacrifice all for Christ's sake in the, in the normal sense of begrudging obligation. It is a joy to receive Christ, whatever should be the cost, because again, it is not worth comparing. Jesus shamelessly refuses to obscure the costliness of discipleship. And again, we ought to notice, not because he wishes to emphasize sacrifice. Jesus doesn't just want, for example, really rough and tough guys who are capable of really good moral resolve. Jesus didn't say the things he said here because he was looking for the tough guys. He said this, not to emphasize sacrifice, but to emphasize worth. The question is not, not how much are you willing to sacrifice? What kind of a person are you? What are you willing to sacrifice? But what is Jesus worth to you? I have not a single doubt, I've said this, not a single doubt that there is a person in this room who, if they beheld a little bit of the worthiness of Christ, would not, in any moment, should they be called upon it, give everything away that they had, if if that was what it was told to them would be the cost of obtaining Christ. Not a single person knows. And from this, we see that we can be unashamed of preaching in the strictest terms the costliness of discipleship only when we are actually convinced that Jesus is worth it. When we obscure the costliness of discipleship, when we proclaim the gospel, when we are in our relationships, we tell people of Christ, and if we uh, intentionally perhaps obscure the costliness, things of this nature, that might reveal that we ourselves are not convinced or we have not beheld the worthiness of Christ. And thank God there's mercy and there's grace for that. And I, I have at this point three uh, quick application points for that. First, the number one thing that anyone ought to do in a situation like this is pray. If you are right now sensing a sense of regret that you do not treasure the worth of Christ, pray the simple prayer, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. Nothing lofty, just have, pray to the Son of God that he might have mercy on you, and we know that he gives it to us. We are fundamentally dependent on God for the transformation of our hearts. That's why we can speak of it as grace. God transforms, we, do, we, we respond with transformation. Second application is we need to feast on Scripture concerning Christ. You might say, I want to treasure Christ, I'm having no, no luck doing it. It's not a spontaneous religious, religious experience that we encounter when we think about the word Jesus. We encounter Christ most specifically in our context in the word of God. This is, we, we see in the word of God the actual testament of the person of Christ and then books upon books, the whole Bible really, but especially the New Testament letters, 
just expounding upon the beauty and the worthiness of Christ as seen in the gospel narrative. We have this, and we treasure Christ. We learn to treasure Christ by feasting on Scripture. And we, we might say we wish to treasure Christ, but if we cannot find it in our, t- in our schedule, uh, time to read his word, then we are really actually being very, very foolish. If I want to treasure Christ, I'm not willing to correct the Bible. I'm being foolish. And at this point, we return to step one. We pray to God, have mercy. Third application is we need to belong to a church family in a meaningful way. We are not lone rangers trying individually to treasure Christ. The beauty of the church is that we are a redeemed family spurring one another on to treasure Christ. If you read any one of the New Testament letters from Paul, for example, you will see definitively, I'm very confident, you will see definitively that it is the attitude of the New Testament that each believer ought and needs to belong to a body of believers in a meaningful way for the glory of Christ and for infecting one another with the joy and worship of Jesus. When we're celebrating the gospel together, it's infectious. It fills the room with the adoration of Christ, and that is what it is to partake meaningfully and a body of believers, and it, it spurs each of us individually on to treasure the worthiness of Christ. If you are, and again, if you're not convinced, go back to step two. Read the Bible. See for yourselves what Scripture says concerning the church. And if you struggle to belong to church because of human weakness, return to step one. We pray, Son of God, have mercy on me. And there's mercy for sinners like us. The last movement then in the text is beware. I, I, I've written the deception of obedience-less confession. The only words uh, that I have not yet touched upon in our text is, are the three illustrations. He offers three illustrations to these would-be disciples. It's verse 28 and 30. We see the rash builder. Then we see in 31 to 32, the rash warrior king. And lastly, in the last two verses, we see salt, which has lost its taste. In these three illustrations, we have from Jesus a warning about the deception of an obedienceless confession of faith or put in other words, of believing in Jesus only conceptually and not renouncing all that we have in the course of discipleship. Here then is the question that these three illustrations begs of would-be disciples, the people Jesus is talking to contextually, and us, we all ought to consider ourselves uh, to be among this crowd of people, ask ourselves the same question. Do you want Jesus in all of his costliness, having beheld his worthiness, Or do you simply see Jesus as a means, as some of these people doubtlessly did, of attaining all of your pre-existing, self-exalting ambitions? If in following Jesus in all of his, uh, we hope to attain some benefit in this life, whether health, wealth, prosperity, honor, popularity, we do not follow Jesus. We have not only not renounced our own lives, but we have truly made our lives our God, and we have made Jesus a means to an end. And this is why we call this a deception. Obedienceless confession is a deception because when we worship self and use Jesus, we get neither. The person who has chosen worldliness or possessions or to tend to his field or his five yoke of oxen instead of the great banquet that is the kingdom of God, the person who has chosen this hasn't simply made a decision to choose a lesser good. He has made a decision to lose the good he, the only good he thought good to choose. He's chosen this good, and even that good he will have taken from him when his life is gone. The person who has spent his life building barns, if that is what he is, the treasure he has stored up, even that will be taken from him. He will have nothing. So it is a terrible deception to be under, because when we worship self and we use Jesus, we get neither. You can't 
have a little bit of both. We, we pick Jesus or we pick nothing at all is the, the tragic thing. We cannot seek our own life and obtain it. We, we lose everything in the end if this is what we should do. Any pleasure, any joy you experience in self-worship is as fleeting as this present life. And when it is gone, you will have nothing except eternal destruction as the due reward of our, your, or your rebellion against God and for rejection of the cross of Jesus. Listen how Jesus illustrates a person under such a deception. We'll look first at the wrath builder in verse 28. It says, for which, of me, uh, excuse me, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. A person who claims Jesus but has no intentions of being transformed by costly grace is like a rash builder who starts building a tower before he has even considered if he can afford to do it. Such a person is without common sense and their foolishness is recognized by everyone. It's a very plain sense parable. The person who does not have any intentions of costly grace when they, when they follow Christ, no, no sort of obedience in their confession of Christ, is like someone who starts building a tower without having first considered whether or not they had, it in, they had the money in the pocket to, to pay for such a tower. So did you know that Jesus is Lord over you and all that you have? Obedience to him is not optional for the Christians in this life. Some might think, well, this sort of obedience is maybe for top-tier Christians of, of elite form, but this is not for, there's not tiers of Christianity. Obedience to him is not optional for the Christian. We who receive the grace of God will, this is a grace, will be transformed by it or else it was no grace at all. The grace of Christ transforms. It doesn't transform some of us. It transforms all of us when we receive it. And it transforms us in the process as it uh, controls us in obedience with the spirit of God. We renounce obligation to even the most natural claims that we have on ourselves or that our loved ones have on us when Jesus makes a claim on us. So we ask again, do you want Jesus? This is the thing he, he asks us to, to count that sort of cost. Second illustration is the rash warrior king. It's verses 31 and 32. It says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down, uh, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms, peace. The person who claims Jesus but has no intentions of being transformed by costly grace is like a king who picks a war, a war without first considering whether he has any hopes of winning it. It's the example he uses. He just goes out into war, this sort of person, without even noticing, oh, this man has 20,000 people. I have 10,000 people. And he would have, if he had thought to consider it, he would have sent a delegation asking for terms of peace. This is a picture of rashness. This is what it is then to have no intentions of being transformed by costly grace. Did you know that following Jesus is not a safe thing to do as far as your bodily well-being is concerned? We don't have any such promise. When we receive an act in the spirit of Christ, we will speak and act not with a mind for our own well-being. Look at the example of Jim Elliot but with a mind for the righteousness of God and the interests of others, which is to say that our actions will not always be favorable to our safety. We have a higher duty as Christians than the preservation of our own life, and we are regularly called upon through Scripture in the, in the process of discipleship to perform such duties under the direction and grace of the Spirit of God. God sees, this is what we believe, God sees to our lives 
We are not overseers of our own lives. We cannot add a single second, we are, we are told in the Gospels. We cannot continue to live should we, not, uh, should we decide to live longer. It's true for everybody, except that the Christian is under no such deception that he has any sort of control over such a thing. Do you want Jesus? Last illustration is salt, which has lost its taste. And this is a particularly uh, daunting one. We'll look at verses 34 and 35 now. It says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The person who claims Jesus but has no intentions of being transformed by costly graces like salt, which has lost its taste, which is, in plain terms, to say, useless and without power to have effect. This is, again, a particularly glooming warning because Jesus extends the illustration to the logical conclusion. What do you do with useless salt? You throw it out. And this is an illustration he applies to would-be disciples who have no intentions of being transformed by cause of grace. And so we, ought, we would do ourselves a great favor if we considered such things tonight. If we hear such a warning, and it may apply to us, but we aren't bothered to consider it, we're being foolish. But we have ample grace in Christ. I say none of this to scare anyone, but we are unashamed of the costliness of discipleship because of the worthiness of the grace that we receive in Christ Jesus. So heed these warnings and pray to God, Son of God, have mercy on me. You will receive transformative grace in your life when you seek the Lord. And from this illustration, I want us also to see that Jesus does not save Christians and then put us in a box, doesn't sideline us. The person who has been transformed by the grace of God belongs to God to do his will. Paul regularly describes himself as a slave of God. It's a very harsh term, but he does it very willfully. First Corinthians tells us that we are not our own, for we were bought with a price. Conclusion, so glorify God in your body. We were bought with a high price. The Son of God gave his own life. God sacrificed his own son. So glorify God in your body. Christ is not, God has not paid so great a cost for us, his own son, freeing us of the eternal debt of sin, transforming us into the children of God, and for us to sit back and, and pretend as though he has no just claims on us. We are to glorify God in our body. As salt has flavor, so ought we who have been bought with a price to glorify God in our bodies. And Christ says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a fitting conclusion for such a, such a thing. So let us, let us hear tonight if, if such a thing applies to us. So coming together then now, we've considered the costliness of discipleship. We've beheld, I hope that you have beheld, the worthiness of Jesus seen in the costliness of discipleship, and we've seen a warning about the deception of obedienceless confession. And so the band, if you guys can go ahead and make your way up, and I'll, I'll go ahead and invite everyone to, to stand uh, as, we, as the band comes up. And in closing, I, I want us to read from Philippians 3, verses 8 through 16. And this is an opportunity for application right now. When we look at this text concerning our Lord Christ, let us right now direct our attentions and worship Christ. So worship with me as we read of his costly grace and of our precious hope. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share, may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we obtained.